say is in a crucial stage. It's not because of foreign wars we wage. It's more to do with the colors blue and red. Too many laws and too much government. Can you tell me where the Constitution went? The Bill of Rights is just hanging by a thread. So many people try to cross the border. Politicians build a new world order. Too many minds are convinced they should be led. I've got to be free the way God made men. And I won't be ruled by the damned who went. Taking your right to self defense. They say you're safer, but they don't make sense. Dangerous ones will not turn in the guns. Always ask for more. All we buy is made on foreign shores. Come a day when there'll be real hell to pay. I've gotta be free the way God made men. And I won't be ruled by the damned who wet. Welcome to today's broadcast of Tapping to the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. With you as always, I am your ever so humble and mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, coming to you live from historic Rome County, Tennessee. And so very glad to have you with me here today, as always. Well, lots of interesting things going on. Of course, the push for gun control is ever so present, but uh, the drumbeat is getting quite a bit louder. And as that drumbeat is attracting the overwhelming attention for conservative voices like myself and other commentators as well, uh, there are other things going on. Uh, Things going on involving, uh, you know, I don't know, let's call it an antitrust bill. Uh, We're talking about uh, Senate Bill 2992. And I mentioned that specifically because I will be joined here in just a little bit by the host of the political ringside politics talk show uh, from the native New Orleans, uh, native New Orlander, I should say, uh, the... uh, quintessential, I I say this, he doesn't, but uh, he's the quintessential conservative voice from the land of the Cajun, uh, Mr. Jeff Cruer. And uh, Jeff is bringing a friend with him. We will be talking with the the 
content manager and brand ambassador for the Foundation for Economic Education and the host of the podcast, Based, uh, Miss Hannah Cox. And that's just a little bit of what we will be looking at today. But before we discuss that, there's another topic that we need to talk about. You see, there's this dirty little secret. You see, uh, Joe Biden wants to talk about how he's going to convince you that the Second Amendment is not uh, absolute. He's going to try to tell you the lie that you couldn't own a cannon during the revolutionary days when, point of fact, most cannons were privately owned at that time. Uh, he's going to tell you stories about how he was a truck driver. He's going to tell you stories about how he was arrested in South Africa. He's going to tell you all kinds of crazy stories that just aren't true. But in the process, Brandon is going to continue to destroy our economy. And if you want to look at long-term effects with each passing day, we get to a point where it's going to take longer and longer to recover from the Biden economic bashing of the United States economy. And the latest indicator of a long-term downturn is the fact that right now Americans are only saving a very, very tiny fraction of their income. Now, you may wonder why that really matters. I mean, we were told that as long as we keep spending, it's good for the economy, right? Well, you see, uh, that's a temporary influx fix. It's a, a tiny amount of cash flow that cannot continue to be replicated once you run out of cash of your own. See, as rising price levels continue to pressure American families, a lot of folks seem to be dipping into their savings to cover the extra cost. Now, as they do that, it means there's less money available for investing. As inflation outpaces gains in income, Americans find themselves trying to, trying to continue to live at the lifestyle level that they had been at previously, but now that means they're really living beyond their means. And in order to cover those expenses, they're, they're having to utilize funds that they had been putting to the side. And that's not the only thing going on, but we'll get there in a moment. You see, households saved a mere 4.4% of their after-tax income in April. This is the lowest level that we have seen in the United States since 2008. This information is according to the Bureau of Economics Analysis report that was released this past Friday. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve data, uh, it indicates that balances for credit cards and similar types of debt, well, that soared at a 35.3% rate in March. That's the fastest one-month surge since 1998, uh, according to the New York Times. You know, not exactly a bastion of conservative thought there. Now, a fundamental reality in economics is that a lack of savings renders investment impossible. A lack of savings, I'm trying to drive this point home, makes investment impossible. You've got to be able to have liquid cash flow before you can start considering investing. Now, according to uh, David 
Benson, I'm probably butchering his last name. Sorry about that, David. Uh, the founder of the Manhattan-based wealth management firm uh, by his name. He said that long-term economic activity is threatened by the low rate of savings. Saying, quote, investment is the precondition for productivity, which is the precondition for growth. Therefore, declining savings means declining growth. He continued saying, we cannot ever invest a single dollar that is not first saved. All invested dollars are first saved dollars. If one believes that greater investment will feed greater productivity, then one must favor greater savings, which is the uh, the basic fundamental principle for investing. Now, barely there, Beijing Biden uh, professed to sympathize with American families that are facing these higher prices on Monday in an opinion piece that he was credited for that appeared at the Wall Street Journal. In this opinion piece, accredited to barely there Biden, he said, quote, Americans are anxious. I know that feeling. I grew up in a family where it mattered when the price of gas or groceries rose. We felt it around the kitchen table. But the American people should have confidence that our economy faces these challenges from a position of strength. Now, that position of strength, of course, is easy for Joe to to say. I mean, he's out of touch enough with the average American. We don't have a bag man running around to foreign countries collecting cash for us. We don't have our own little hunter. We don't have a guy who's now painting art to launder cash. We don't have the same connections. We're not able to trade on the political favors and the political name of Biden, which, strangely enough, not particularly well thought of in leftist political circles. He's he's that... that that nice enough guy, but uh, again, even Barack, I, I remind you, continued to say, never underestimate Joe's ability to F things up. Man. Now, Banson, or Bonson, or uh, again, I'm butchering his last name, and I apologize. He added that Americans have not yet cut back on spending due to inflation. Rather, they've only changed the composition of their spending. Back to quoting now, the decline in the savings rate reflects the roll-off of savings impact from the government transfer payments of just over a year ago. The credit card use increase reflects the reality that temporary government stimulus becomes permanent American spending very easy. Now, Biden met with the Federal Reserve Chair uh, Powell this past Tuesday in an effort to support the central bank's moves to roll back its monetary stimulus. The Fed hiked interest rates by uh, half a percent earlier this month. That was the largest rate increase since May of 2000, by the way. And this was done in an attempt to curb rising price levels. Uh, The move followed by a, a quarter of a percent rate hike from near zero levels two months ago. According to the 
Heritage Foundation, however, at least research fellow E.J. Ananetti over there, uh, he said that there is very little reason for consumers to think that price increases will somehow stop. We have seen wholesale inflation. The prices businesses pay outpace inflation at the consumer level for every month of Biden's presidency. There are tremendous costs that have yet to be passed on to consumers, meaning much more inflation is already baked into the cake. It's coming, ladies and gentlemen. Things are still just going to get more expensive. As energy prices continue to rise, the new expenses will trickle down to all goods and services across the economy, putting additional upwards pressure on prices in the coming months. Monday, this past Monday, Memorial Day, it marked the highest gas prices for Memorial Day in more than a decade. This according to data from uh, AAA and the U.S. Energy Information Administration. They both shared the same piece of data. Prices at the pump hit $4.62 per gallon on Memorial Day 2022, 53% higher than the $3.03 per gallon on Memorial Day of 2021, and 136% higher than that $1.96 per gallon on Memorial Day of 2020. Even before COVID-19 lockdown policies suppressed driving demand at this time two years ago, gas prices were roughly $2.85. That was Memorial Day of 2019, meaning that today's prices are 62% higher than equivalent pre-pandemic levels. So with that in mind, how are we supposed to save money? How are we supposed to find enough cash to continue to fuel the engine that is the American economy, to fuel innovation, to fuel a raising of the standard of living of all Americans regardless of where they fall in the socioeconomic levels that our nation tends to divide us into? We have to be able to invest, and we have to be able to save first. Investment is a form of savings for some folks, but you're looking to get a return on investment. But right now, inflation is chewing into everything at a level that we cannot match. No matter what your earning income level is, you must be wealthy in order to be able to comfortably survive right now. And the the terrible thing here uh, for those of us that are middle class or lower – is that the wealthy are going to be fine regardless. In fact, the rich are just going to get richer because now they're seeing the tumbling of stock prices. They're going to be able to buy up a lot of really good stocks at discounted prices. And then later on, eventually, when the economy does start to bounce back, uh, many years removed from Joseph Robinette Biden Jr.'s time at the helm, when that happens, they're going to have a great deal more of uh, value added to the price of those stocks. That's not something most of us can take advantage of right now. Most of us are in a position where whatever extra money we had before is going into our gas tanks, and we're trying to figure out how do we find some more cash so we can continue to afford our groceries. 
We got to get the gas first so we can keep going to work. We got to keep going to work or then we can't make the mortgage payments. We've talked about on a multitude of occasions how when your first day in office, you attack the energy policy that had led this country to being energy independent, that you are begging for inflation. You're creating an inflationary spike because the one expense that every business has is the cost of transporting ingredients, parts, whatever you use to make your product to you, and then the cost of transporting it to your lanes of distribution so that it can eventually get to a end customer. Whether you're doing business-to-business sales or whether you're a a food manufacturer trying to get your product uh, into a restaurant or into a uh, chain store for somebody there to purchase. If it costs you 10% more on your most prevalent ingredient that you use, and it's costing you 35% more for the packaging that you have to put it in, never mind how much more you're spending on wages now because nobody will continue to show up to work unless you're paying them three, four, ten times what you ordinarily would have paid before. Because they suspect that they have more value than what they're bringing to the table. The whole idea, the whole concept right now for the labor market has been skewed to the point that they don't seem to understand that the rate you should be paid is based on the value you bring to the company. A company cannot continue to be profitable. And I know for leftists out there, being profitable is a bad word. But a business cannot continue to stay in business if it is not at least somewhat, on a tiny margin at the very least, profitable. There's no point to stay in business. And if they're losing money, they certainly can't. As an employee, you should want to bring value to the company you're working for. Because if you don't, you're just contributing to those price pressures that contributes to more of the inflation. The government obviously cannot continue to just spend money hand over fist, uh, particularly money it does not even have, particularly money on plans and schemes that do no good for the American people. Even more so, lots of dollars going outside of the United States, in some cases to sworn enemies of the United States. Well, you know, we're just going to buy some friends. That doesn't work, Joe. By now, you should know this. A a decade ago, I just completely gave up the notion that there is such a thing as an unintended consequence in the land of politics. These people have seen enough history that they know what the ramifications of a bad policy move is going to be. You cannot tell me that Joe Biden wasn't aware that as soon as he started attacking our energy policies, he wasn't setting in motion the falling of the first domino that was going to lead to an economic collapse of this country. He literally, literally, all he had to do if he wanted to see one of the strongest economic returns 
of all times was set back and not change any economic and energy policies at all because we were coming back from the COVID shutdowns, an artificial shutdown. All you had to do was just let things snap back to normal and let people go back to work right off the bat as they should have instead of trying to give people excuses not to go be that spark plug for our economy. And we would have been rip-roaring back to the pre-COVID economy that was so strong for so many people. In the meanwhile, we now have politicians that are looking to try and uh, to use the notion of looking out for the little guy, watching out for smaller companies, fighting against the big boys. They're utilizing this to give government just a little more power. They're using this to once again make it harder for smaller companies to grab a little bit of market share. There's a reason why companies like Facebook and Google and uh, any other major big-time corporation that has billions of dollars at its disposal likes the government coming in and putting new regulations in place. And that's because the more highly you regulate it, the more money you have to have in order to meet your regulatory obligations. Now, I come to this discussion from a place of, again, food manufacturing. That's what I have the most experience with. And I can tell you right now there's enough FDA or USDA regulations in place that if you were trying to launch a brand-new product right now, you had better already have huge amounts of dollars available to begin with. Because if you do not have millions, if you're operating – planning on opening up a small factory, if you don't have millions available just for regulatory compliance, you're probably not going to be able to keep your doors open. And it doesn't matter how great of a product you have. It doesn't matter how efficiently you're running the business. The regulatory side of things makes it harder. Only the really big boys in the business have zero problems with regulatory um, oversight from the government, looking for the right word. And so there you have it. That's part of the discussion I'm going to be having with Jeff Cruer here in just a moment. So you guys don't go anywhere. We're going to go ahead and do the mid-hour break. But before I slide into that, I want to take this opportunity to once again remind you about a great company called HoneyFund.com. If you're planning on getting married anytime soon or you know someone who is, then this may be a this economy may be one of the best times ever to slide over and set yourself up a page over at honeyfund.com remember honeyfund is the most trusted honeymoon registry site currently on the web and funding your honeymoon well that's their business over there you go ahead you start up a honeyfund page and suddenly wedding gifts they can make contributions, and those contributions become cash in your hand, cash that you can use to travel the world together with your newly began uh, life as husband and wife or wife and wife or husband and husband. Yeah, no judgment here. Like I said, eh. the whole thing here, though, is they're very simple. 
but powerful cash registry? Well, it's certainly – it's a lot better than any of their other competitors. Feel free to compare. But uh, it doesn't matter if you're looking to save up and fund your honeymoon or to come up with a down payment for a new home, and that's about to get real tricky, so that might not be a bad plan. Any savings goal that you may have to kick off your brand-new life, honeyfund.com is the way to go. And that is where you want to go is honeyfund.com. Uh, just as an FYI, uh, I do own a tiny bit of equity stake in Honey Fund, very small amount, well below the minimum required to to be compelled to inform you. But I figure I might as well let you know. Uh, otherwise, I just feel like I'm keeping secrets, and then, uh, you know, that's just wrong. All right, so with that being said, what do you say we actually get to that mid-hour break? And on the other side, uh, my conversation with Jeff Cruer and with his guest that he brought Miss Hannah Cox. Don't go anywhere. We will have that conversation right after this. You're listening to Tap into the Truth. Renowned globalist and leftist influencer Bill Gates bankrolled hundreds of media outlets to the tune of more than $319 million. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, brought to you by Constitutional Grounds Coffee. According to Minute Press, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has generously funded leftist media outlets both here in the United States and abroad, primarily in Europe and Africa, where Gates is famously accused of allegedly working to render Africans less able to reproduce. Gates has generously bestowed NPR with $24 million. Cascade Public Media has received over $10 million from Gates and CNN. They've been gifted with well over $3 million from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm. Der Spiegel of Germany has been granted the handsome amount of almost $5.5 million. The media recipient list of Bill Gates' generous media donations is too long to complete at this time, but it must be nice to simply buy media influence all over the world. Hmm. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out the Ron Edwards American Experience talk show times via theronedwards.com. Ron Edwards, the new voice of America. It's not so unbelievable that governments would want to disarm their citizens, but that citizens would beg to be disarmed by their government is a much scarier thought. We've seen government control most recently in Venezuela, where citizens are left to defend themselves against a violent government by throwing rocks, because not too long ago, they were disarmed by that very government under the guise of gun safety. Gun control laws like the ones in Venezuela are exactly what our political left in America would like to see here. 
As a mother, I am terrified. I have four children in our public school system. And if they knew that their teachers were potentially carrying a gun... They want to be disarmed by our government so badly that they protest in the streets, demanding that government take away their rights. All for that assault weapons ban, to keep these weapons of war out of the hands of civilians who do not need them. All for the prohibition of high-capacity magazines, because no hunter will ever need access to a magazine that can kill 17 in mere minutes. How does this happen? Well, it's complicated, but it starts with very powerful propaganda targeted at people who can't think. People who have been taught to believe that freedom is dangerous. People who can't think for themselves are targeted from many directions. Schools, movies, news sources, and even their own friends and family. And once they're on board with the anti-gun fear campaign, they continue to perpetuate the irrational gun fear. Well, they have to justify their position, right? Also yeah. don't need home protection. Um, oh. you, don't, you don't need guns for home protection. You don't want to bring more guns into a situation. The answer to solving violence is not more violence. Gun fear is cultivated purely for the purpose of gun control support. But the people who spread it don't always know that they've been misled. They think they're doing a good thing. These same people are taught to hate gun owners. They're taught that gun owners are recklessly and intentionally putting everyone in danger. They're taught that gun owners are the enemy, and more government control will protect them from the enemy. Why does anybody need an assault rifle if they're not going to war? I don't think there's any reason to have 33 bullets in a killing machine that you can take into a place like a school. Watch these anti-gun activist groups in action. And you can't help but ask yourself if they have any clue what the real results would be if they were successful. So what's the real problem here? Is it really guns or is this about something else? I mean, do guns cause violence? How do we let the gun grabbers hijack the conversation and direct the focus to firearms when we all know we really should be talking about what causes human violence? You see, if we were to look at what causes human violence in this country, we'd be forced to look at gang violence, open borders, sanctuary cities, rampant pharmaceutical drug use, and gun-free zones, all things that the anti-gun political left supports. So to the anti-gunners, why in the world would you want your government to take away your rights? The Second Amendment is not a privilege. It's your right. I'm Dan Wass. To check out my webcast, go to LoadedMike.com. To check out my book series, go to GoodGunBadGuy.net. I'm Ron Edwards, host of the Edwards Notebook, and you're listening to Tim Tapp and Tap Into the Truth. everybody thanks so very much for staying with me through that very brief break it is my honor to uh, once again welcome back to the show a uh, guest that it has been a little while since he's been here with us but you know him well as the host of ringside politics the native new orleans the definitive 
conservative voice in the land of the Cajun. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for the first time in quite a while, Mr. Jeff Cruer. Jeff, uh, thanks for uh, hopping on board with me. So glad to have you here with me this evening. Uh, as usual, I hope you're doing well. But I am even more pleased the fact that you have brought an additional guest with you. Yes. And uh, Tim, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, for having us. And it's always an honor to be on your fine program. And uh, it's going to be a very interesting discussion because we're going to be talking about uh, something uh, very important, and that is the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. And we'll get into that uh, and all the aspects of it. And the other guest I want to welcome is uh, Hannah Cox. Uh, she is a content manager and brand ambassador for the Foundation for Economic Education. She's a libertarian conservative writer and activist and also the host of the podcast Based. And uh, Hannah, welcome. Thanks for having me. So Hannah, we are uh, looking at something that is now uh, sort of moving uh, in Congress. And it's uh, something that uh, I've been following for quite a while, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. And it's really got a, a co-author who is uh, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, who is uh, really, I think, the main force behind this uh, bill. And we're getting a word that it's really now getting uh, ramped up. So we wanted to bring you on and talk about it. So tell us what you have uh, uncovered about this act, Hannah. Well, I think there's a couple things that people need to know before we can even get to the specific bill, right? When we talk about antitrust, it's kind of one of those wonky things that a lot of people aren't that familiar with and, and that maybe feel a bit uh, obtuse to people. And, and the thing is, I used to be in that camp too, but recently I started doing a lot more research into antitrust. And it's really interesting because if there's one thing you should know about politics, it's that when they name a bill something or when they tell you a bill is to accomplish something, just assume it's the opposite, right? <laughs> like every time. And that's what is the case with antitrust. They want to say it's about competition. They want to say it's about capitalism, but it's really quite the opposite. It's typically been used by the government to come in and try to regulate businesses and to try to make businesses act and manner that the government and in power at the time wants them to act according to. And so it's really just this kind of nefarious thing that does not promote competition. Um, they want to say that it's prevent monopolies, but monopolies are a rarity. You, you hardly ever see monopolies in the country unless you, you dig in, you find that there's the government propping up an industry or propping up a certain company and giving it special favors. And then sometimes occasionally you'll see an outlier like that. So all that to say, that's the history of antitrust. And it was used abusively throughout this country up until the 1970s. And then you got some really good legal precedent around that time, you know, early 80s, mid 80s. There was a conservative legal scholar named Robert Bork, and he basically started saying that if you're going to have antitrust, there should be some criteria that determines it, right? It shouldn't just be on the whims of politicians saying, oh, we don't like this business, we don't like that business. Instead, he said that we should use something called the consumer welfare standard. And essentially all that standard says is that when you're evaluating whether or not antitrust should be used against a company, mm -hmm. the, the judges and, and, the, and the scholars and, and the lawyers working on these issues, they should say, is it a monopoly, first and foremost, which again is extremely rare? Has it used its monopoly, monopoly power in any actual effective way? And thirdly, has it used its monopoly power in a way that actually hurts consumers, right? If we're going to start intervening in the market and saying companies shouldn't get to be there and shouldn't get to exist or should get broken up, why? Well, the only real reason would be if they actually hurt 
consumers and hurt their ability to get the things they need in the market. And so that became sort of the prevailing way of evaluating the antitrust beginning in the 1980s. And it's been that way ever since. And because of that, we very rarely see antitrust used because those conditions are just about never met. Um, but now you have people like Amy Klobuchar on the left and you have people like Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton on the right who simply don't really support free market capitalism. And they want to be able to come in and tell companies how they should run their businesses. And so there's a number of uh, antitrust bills floating around that are trying to reform our system, that are trying to get rid of the consumer welfare standard and that are trying to move us closer to right. the standard that you see in Europe. And that's basically what this bill is. So let me, Tim, let me ask one more question, then I'll turn it over to you. So this is supposedly all about uh, helping small businesses compete, helping competition. And, and really, it is the opposite of that, isn't it, uh, Hannah? Because, you know, this, uh, this bill uh, would forbid a, a platform from promoting services and products offered by, let's say, veteran-led or Black-owned businesses. Uh, this would uh, supposedly help uh, competition, but, you know, a lot of small businesses uh, work with uh, some of these quote-unquote giants to promote their products, and, and they could be harmed by this legislation. Uh, tell us more if you could. Yeah, that's a really great point. So the way this this actual bill is crafted is just super corrupt from the get-go. It's it's set in such a way where it just targets certain online companies, not even all of them, just, just the ones that are successful, really, um, and basically says things that they couldn't do. Like, all right, so you go on Amazon, right, and you search for women's flip-flops. You might be shown a number of options on Amazon that are from random sellers, smaller sellers, um, and then you might be shown some options that Amazon actually makes themselves, and they might be cheaper. And what it would do is say that Amazon should be penalized for showing you its products first, or Google should be penalized for showing you its own products first. And that's a standard that we see in Europe that actually limits innovation. It, it targets certain companies arbitrarily. What I think is really funny about this bill is Amy Klobuchar has Target in her district. Now, if you go into any given Target, you're gonna see generic Target products on the shelf, and they're probably gonna be placed at a premium where they meet your eyesight, right? It doesn't prohibit Target from doing that. She just goes after online people while shielding brick and mortars in her own district. So it's it's all it's it's always been written in such a way where it's meant to target big tech. She doesn't like big tech. She doesn't like tech companies. She right. wants to go after them. And and you're absolutely right that a lot of smaller businesses rely on these larger sites like Amazon, like Etsy, like Google, in order to get their products seen, in right. order to become visible. And so what she's doing would actually just hurt uh, everybody. It would it would limit competition. It would make it harder to enter the marketplace. And it actually really just stacks the deck against some businesses in favor of others, which is cronyism. Right. And, and I'm worried about small businesses. I'm worried about consumers. And I don't think either of them are going to win uh, from this uh, legislation at all. So, Tim, I know you've been looking at it. What do, what do you think? Well, you know, I'm, I'm left with this question because, uh, as Hannah mentioned, there are some folks that, generally speaking, are particularly well thought of on, among the conservative side, uh, folks with R's at the end of their name that seem to be on board with this. Uh, have you seen any indication here, Hannah, that maybe some of this is still spurned by this uh, notion that these specific big tech companies, the Facebooks and uh, the Amazons, who have apparently uh, worked to try and squash conservative voices in the past, is there some of this 
political aspect that's kind of blinding them to the uh, business side of this? Or uh, is this really a case where Klobuchar has managed to write this in such a fashion that uh, they're not realizing how much this would actually harm uh, the smaller businesses, or is this really a case? As you indicated, that maybe just some folks with an R at the end of their name uh, aren't really any better on this topic than some folks that uh, put that D at the end. Well, I think it's the latter, and I think that's an unfortunate reality is that you've got a number of Republicans who've been running around for decades claiming to support capitalism, claiming to support limited government, and they don't mean it. And if you just watch the bills they introduce and you watch the ways they vote, it becomes rapidly apparent that they don't actually stand by those things whatsoever. They just want to entrench their own power. And I think right now there's a certain swath of the right that's mad at big tech, and some of that is is justified, and some of that has been you know politically generated, but either way— it's become sort of a sexy thing for some Republicans in the populist camp to try to say, oh, look what I'm doing to target big tech, look what I'm doing to go after them. And it's super anti-capitalist and it's very big government. And, and I, you know, I've, I've met with some of these guys and I refuse to think they don't know what they're doing. I think they know exactly what they're doing. And in this bill, what they're doing precisely is empowering the Department of Justice, which I just want to remind people is currently targeting parents at school boards for protesting school closures and empowering the FTC, which is run by a Biden appointed socialist and giving them more power over the free market. And this is what makes me kind of angry is you have these people who, you know, they only believe in capitalism as long as it's serving them, that they get mad at somebody, they don't like how somebody's acting, they think it's fine to come and use big government to target them. And what that ends up doing is being so short-sighted that that is then used as a wedge, right? Like once that law's in place, they come in, they use it, and they expand it, and they go after any number of other industries. And that's how we get this crony system we currently have that really doesn't resemble free market capitalism at all because these people aren't principled. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, you point out the fact that this doesn't quite meet the criteria of antitrust because a lot of what Amazon does in this instance is actually helpful for the end consumer, can save them a lot of money and uh, gives them a lot of better options and a lot of uh, more ease of use. But uh, with all of this uh, generated hoopla against the big tech companies, uh, how are we uh, doing on messaging uh, this particular fact that this is the opposite of what they're claiming? Because ultimately, that's what we always end up doing. You made the great point. Uh, if you're seeing uh, how these people are naming a bill and what they tell you the bills to do, assume it's the opposite. That should be standard fare for most folks. But as we uh, all know, way too many people still consider CNN a trusted news source, MSNBC a trusted news source. So it's kind of up to people like us to get that messaging out. How are you seeing this messaging going? Uh, how effective do you think we're being at this point? Well, I think right now the obstacle we have is, again, like I said at the beginning of the episode, a lot of people just don't know what antitrust is. And it sounds dry and it sounds boring and they don't really understand how it impacts them or why it affects them. So that's a big hurdle we have to overcome. But I will say that increasingly I do believe people are waking up to the fact that um, that these things are negative and that they actually do prevent competition. It's pretty easy to point to Europe's system and show how they have smaller GDPs, how they have less competition, how there's less options for consumers, and how ultimately <coughs> it's consumers who suffer as an end result of these kinds of policies. So we've got some pretty good models to point to. And I also think, you know, we've had some wins in the courts lately where Republicans have tried to pass some very anti-free speech bills in Florida and Texas, and, and they've not succeeded. They've been stopped. And so I think people are starting to recognize that you can't sell out the Constitution. You can't sell out capitalism just for cheap wins. And that is what they're doing. 
So I want to uh, also talk about uh, the consumer. And uh, I think that one of the uh, unfortunate side effects of this will be that uh, convenience services that consumers have become used to that have been very helpful, such as, you know, bundled services like free Prime Video with Prime Shopping and Microsoft Teams as part of uh, Office 365 would be eliminated. And, and I don't think the, uh, the average American understands the ramifications uh, of this act, uh, Hannah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When you look at how Americans actually feel about a lot of these tech companies, while some conservatives have been, you know, annoyed at them for its overly censoring posts, and while some of the left have fallen for conspiracy theories that they, you know, push Russian propaganda, et cetera, as a whole, people like these companies. They like the services they offer. They're largely free or very low cost, and people choose to use them. You know, Amazon is a great example. People love Amazon. We couldn't have gotten through the pandemic without Amazon and the kinds of services that they offer. And so when you really start explaining to people that these kinds of bills could actually limit the services they currently enjoy and start stripping away the capabilities that they are currently benefiting from on these platforms, I think they turn pretty quickly. Now, one thing that I think is is, is a definite fact is that some of these uh, big, uh, big tech companies are uh, engaged in censorship. We know that uh, Facebook has, we know Twitter has, and and possibly that'll change with Elon Musk. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but this bill does nothing to uh, address the censorship issue, which a lot of conservatives have been worried about. And in, in it does something that conservatives should be very upset about, and that is empowering big government, <laughs> empowering the DOJ, empowering the FTC, that's not what a true conservative would want in any legislation, Anna. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I think that's one that we need to continue to reiterate is I don't always like the practices of Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, but I can guarantee you I'd like the practices a lot less if they were run by the U.S. government. I can't think of any entity that would be you know, less capable providing that actual good consumer service online than the government. And so it's, again, it's one of these things where as capitalists, if you actually believe in liberty, you actually believe in capitalism, you have to recognize things don't always go your way. Freedom doesn't mean that everybody's nice to you and everybody likes your posts and nothing is ever bad happening to you out in the market and in the real world. But we can use market pressure to push back on these things. I think we are starting to do that effectively, even with Elon Musk seeking to buy this and, and with some of the pushback we've seen against the quote, quote, fact checkers, they're, they're losing, right? They canceled the disinformation board because of pressure that we gave them in the market. That's how you actually fight. That's how you maintain liberty and actually fight in an ethical, principled way. Coming in and saying that the government should get all this control and should get to come in and tell companies how to run things, I mean, that is actually a First Amendment violation. That is actually anti-capitalist. And you don't beat evil with evil, right? So we need to be a bit more serious about this. And also, again, even if you can't be convinced on just the basic principles of how we should govern ourselves in a, in a free society, at the end of the day, you should at least know enough about history to recognize that when you give the government so much power over a certain industry, you know, you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile and it will go a lot further than that. And it will then be used against other companies. And ultimately it will be used against you and cause as you like. All right. Well, you know, Hannah, you, you specifically talked about, and Jeff has made the point about the end user and the consumer. And I do think that's probably the most important aspect of this bill, but let me play devil's advocate along a, a path that I typically don't like. And that is the traditional red versus blue fight. Uh, 
politically speaking, this, if it's allowed to move forward, becomes dangerous uh, also because this gives uh, Klobuchar and Democrats something that they've been able to move forward and point to towards a successful agenda point that the average individual is going to think is them standing up for the little guy. Uh, what do you feel like the political ramifications of this could end up being if this is allowed to move forward? You know, that's a really excellent point. It's actually one I brought up with Senator Kennedy's office when I was in D.C. last time because I was just very confused why he's on these bills with her. And, and I asked him, why are you trying to give Democrats a win? right now. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. The, the Republicans who are backing this, I'm, I'm really just confused by as a whole. I think they're making very bad calculations. But I think you're absolutely right. Democrats are, are, I mean, they're desperate for something to hang their hat on right now. They have just been a total catastrophe over the past couple of months. I, I can't think of a worse administration in my lifetime as far as the economy and just, you know, how things are going as far as the social climate goes. They have virtually nothing to point to. They've been a colossal failure on everything they've tried. And so I think if you were to give them these kinds of bills, you know, it, it gives them something to at least run on and say, we passed this, we did this. And again, it also, these bills baked into them, it empowers the Biden administration and unelected bureaucrats within it, which just blows my mind. I don't know why any Republican would ever want to give the Department of Justice or the FTC or any unelected bureaucrats more power. They already have far too much, and they should certainly not get all this oversight over free market businesses. It really is just counterintuitive to everything they say they stand for. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, and also, one other thing that I think we, we also need to throw in here is what about security? What about the fact that this bill, Hannah, forces covered business to share personal information with third parties, including foreign software and app developers. Now, that doesn't seem like uh, a smart uh, way to go about doing business. Yeah, I love that you bring that up because privacy is a huge issue to me. It's a huge issue to a lot of conservatives and libertarians, and it's something that we've seen consistently be eroded further and further in our culture and in our political system, and, and we really have very little actual Fourth Amendment protections left. When it comes to the Internet, you know, the thing about the Internet is they did a pretty good job back when they were initially building it. You did have a lot of people who genuinely, I think, cared about free speech, cared about free market principles, wanted to see those applied to the Internet and work to create laws and a framework that would protect those things. But increasingly, we see people trying to chip away at that and try to end things like end-to-end -end encryption. And even going so far, I mean, one of Klobuchar's other bills, which we're not even talking about right now, but she has a couple of these bad bills floating around, uh, would actually try to penalize companies if they didn't hand over your data without a warrant. And if you didn't, if they didn't do it, it would take away their Section 230 protections. I mean, it, it just boggles the mind to think about. Yeah, it's, it's just absolutely crazy. And, and when you, I mean, maybe a lot of people have not worked on the criminal justice system, but being able to get around warrants, it's, it's not its not a small thing. It's something that actually leads to a lot of wrongful convictions. And it's also something that leads to a lot of guilty people getting off because it's so flagrantly unconstitutional to do this kind of thing that really what they run the risk of is forcing businesses to give them this information and data without a warrant and then it being thrown out and guilty people getting to walk, right? So it, it's bad on both ends. It, it, it's just some of the worst legislation I've ever seen in my time in politics. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to think that uh, this bill that's supposed to be helping uh, the little guy have a better footprint online could lead to such widespread removal of due process, one of our most basic fundamental principles that our judicial system was set on. Uh, 
is this the uh, the most dangerous aspect of the bill in your mind, maybe? Uh, from a civil liberty standpoint, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it's hard to say what's most dangerous because all of these things can be weaponized against people and against businesses. And I think that they're all, all of these elements are super problematic. But I think anytime you're getting into actually criminal elements where you're taking away people's liberties, you're getting into the court system, that that's something we need to be very judicious about and really ensure that we're upholding the Bill of Rights. Instead, we see a bunch of senators who are trying to run roughshod around the Bill of Rights and find ways to circumvent it and even forcing private companies to join them in that. And that's probably the most um, malicious thing about antitrust is that you know, they claim this is to break up monopolies, but it's hardly ever how it has been used. They very rarely actually come in and break up a company because, again, there's hardly ever actually monopolies. What they do instead is they use the threat of it. And they, they threaten businesses and they say, unless you do these things for us, unless you do these things as we want you to, we're going to come in and regulate you or we're going to take away parts of your company. And because the businesses don't really necessarily have a way to fight back, they typically end up caving and doing what the politicians say. And again, that's how you get this crony capitalist system where the government is really working through companies to do its bidding. And it's just wholly anti-constitutional and totally antithetical to what our founders intended for this structure. I just want our uh, listeners to to just uh, hone in on this bill. It's Senate Bill 2992, and uh, it is uh, it is called um, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, and uh, it's being pushed by Klobuchar, by Schumer now. And uh, I think we've just got to just talk to our uh, Republican senators, our maybe our moderate Democrat senators, and and just see if we can. Uh, show them the the flaws, the problems here with this bill that they might not be seeing, uh, that they haven't really delved into, because it looks to me like this has many aspects that could be problematic to conservatives and even to uh, Democrats. And I'm uh, very worried about this legislation now that Schumer is behind it, Hannah. So I think we got to get the word out. And and that's certainly something that we're hoping to do uh, today with this uh, exchange. Well, I appreciate you guys covering that. I think it's very important that we educate Americans about what's going on. People need to raise their voices. They need to push back before it's too late, you know. And I think as a whole, this is something that has largely been happening behind closed doors. We've got to shine a spotlight on it. And, and people have got to get out of this two-party system mentality and recognize there's a lot of people working against our interests in both parties. And we have to start being more principled and really standing, you know, unilaterally for free market capitalism, for limited government, for individual liberty. And, and none of these bills make the mark. All right, Hannah, real quick, too, before we say uh, goodbye to you, I want to make sure you have an opportunity. Please feel free to share any websites you would like to. And if you're inviting folks to follow you on social media, throw out any handles on any of the platforms you'd like as well. Sure. Well, they can find my company and most of my work at base-politics.com. They can find my podcasts and shows on the Base Politics Network on almost every podcast platform there is. And on YouTube, they can check me out at Hannah D. Cox on most social media platforms. So I'd love to connect with people. We've done a ton of content on these issues. If you want to dig in more, we'd love to be a resource for that. All right. Again, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Hannah. And Jeff, real quick, I want you to do the same thing. Let everybody know where they can find all of your good work. And, and thank you, Tim, and really appreciate uh, joining with you for this uh, this great uh, exchange of information about such an important uh, piece of legislation. So folks can get uh, information about me at crewair.net, that's C-R-O-U-E-R-E.net. My columns, videos, information about my book, all of my social media platforms are linked there. So I would just encourage people to check it out at crewair.net and 
And again, uh, Hannah and Tim, uh, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. And uh, definitely, the time to act on this is now. Listeners, reach out to your senators. Uh, the time is now. They're moving forward. We need to help apply the brakes. Uh, again, guys, thank you so much for joining me. All right, so that was my conversation with Hannah Cox and Jeff Carrere. And uh, it is a vital vital thing that we uh, express our concerns uh, you're not getting uh, the full picture from uh, from any individual sources I, I have found very few people other than Jeff who's really digging in and hammering through Hannah is doing a fantastic work here uh, there will be links to their website so you can do follow up with them if you like but now is the time to, to call up our elected officials, our senators in particular, especially our conservative or so-called conservative senators, because a lot of them are signing on to this. In fact, uh, uh, Senator Grassley is a co-sponsor of this bill uh, right out the gate. This is Amy Klobuchar, though, uh, making uh, her intentions to run for president again and trying to increase her bona fides. Uh, going into this midterm uh, we have really, really got to uh, make sure that any time that we do find some level of bipartisanship, that it is not a case of government simply getting stronger. We need to contain our federal government. We need to get it back into the constraints of the Constitution. Uh, if if we haven't adequately covered the biggest issues surrounding this bill right now, I, I don't know what else to do. I don't know how else to reach you. We're looking at First Amendment concerns. We're talking about uh, the literally the ending of due process, utilizing this as the camel's nose <laughs> under the tent door. Uh, it's just absolutely insane. In the meanwhile, uh, if you are listening to uh, terrestrial radio right now, then I'm going to have to uh, say goodbye to you. Uh, this is the first hour of two-hour uh, live broadcast. However, the rebroadcast on terrestrial radio is almost always broken up into one-hour segments. So for those of you that I'm saying goodbye to right now, remember, don't take my word for it. Definitely, definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort, and most importantly, use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. Meanwhile, if you're listening to the podcast anywhere, hour number two starts right after this. Hey, before I end the hour, though, uh, one last thing I would like to say. Hey, Brandon. This is Tim Tapp. Let's go, Brandon. Hey. Let's go, Brandon. Hey. State clan taught to praise the little man, told that union saved the working class. He was raised a red state son to love the flag and own a gun, warned about the greed within the mass. They met beneath the moonlit sky, a college party drunk and high. 
have degrees, they said their vows. He couldn't say when, he couldn't say how, he couldn't say why, she was different in his eyes. You're listening to Tap Into The Truth. My name's Joe Biden. All of this as more than half of Americans think President Biden will go down as one of the worst presidents in American history. I keep forgetting I'm president. Welcome to today's broadcast of Tap Into The Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. With you as always, I am your ever-so-humble and mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, coming to you live from historic Roan County, Tennessee, and so very proud to have you with me. Uh, for those of you that are listening to the rebroadcast on Terrestrial Radio, uh, you know, 
perhaps a great station like KYAH, 540 AM, Utah's Talk Authority, just as an example. They are the flagship of the Tap into the Truth broadcast family that is Terrestrial Radio. Uh, glad to have you here and uh, remind you for your general information that uh, Time of the Light broadcast actually was May 31st, 2022. Uh, so if anything drastic has happened in the last couple of days, uh, that's why I'm not talking about that, and I'm talking about this instead. <laughs> now, if you are listening to Terrestrial Radio and you missed yesterday's broadcast, then you missed a really good conversation that I had with both Jeff Cruer and Miss Hannah Cox. Now, for your information... Miss Hannah Cox is a libertarian conservative writer and activist. She is the content manager and brand ambassador for the Foundation for Economic Education, and she is the host of the podcast, Based. Uh, there will be a link in the show description for the podcast to uh, her website. Highly recommend you check that out, as well as uh, visit Mr. Jeff Cruer. Now, Jeff, of course is the host of Ringside Politics that airs weekdays nationally on Real America's Voice TV network and uh, also on uh, WGSO 990 AM, or, of course, you can listen to WGSO.com. Uh, he's a political uh, columnist. He's the author of America's Last Chance. And, of course, you can see him over at YouTube and on Cruer.com. Net. Be sure to check him out over there. Uh, link will be in the show description as well. And uh, at some point, I promise I will get around to updating recent guests over at the website on tappintothetruth.com. Uh, so uh, I know I, I haven't even updated when Ben Carson was on him. Come on. Why am I not doing this? I don't have enough hours in the day. Sorry. In the meanwhile, uh, if you did miss it, please go find the podcast somewhere and listen to our number one from today's broadcast. It's a very good conversation that we had in discussing uh, Senate Bill 2992, 2992, uh, Amy Klobuchar's effort to uh, attack, attack the big boys on the internet, uh, all in the guise of antitrust, but really is still just anti-business and uh, pro, let's give more power to the federal government. Uh, that, that much you probably could expect. Uh, ever since uh, Senator Chucky Schumer has gotten involved and started taking a real interest in trying to push the bill, that makes me even more nervous, and uh, rightfully so. Uh, Jeff Carrere says just as much as well. Jeff has really been pushing this, and, and I, I see why. It's very dangerous. It, it covers so many things, including First Amendment violations and uh, an effort to end due process for a good number of people. So by all means, if you missed it, please go back and listen uh, to that conversation. It's important. And uh, by the way, please, please reach out to your senator and express your concerns about 2992. S2992. Uh, that's what you really need to be uh, doing right now. Need your help in applying the brakes. They are moving forward with this now. And if you doubt why, uh, as a conservative, you should push against it, because it's, it's painted. 
is painted to sound like a really good thing. Oh, well, you see, we're trying to make sure that the big companies aren't pushing their own products ahead of other smaller businesses trying to get market share at the same time. And they say it in such a way that sounds like they're really looking out for the little guy, like they're trying to kind of stick it to those those online companies that have for so long been trying to squash conservative voices. You may, as a conservative, be sitting back saying, well, why shouldn't we want them to do that to them? Because due process is a factor. And if you don't want to just take my word for it, you don't want to just take Jeff's word for it, if you don't want to take Hannah's word for it, then uh, pay attention to some conservative organizations that also stand opposed to this bill. We're talking about Americans for Tax Reform. We're talking about the National Taxpayers Union. We're talking about R Street Institute. We're talking about Cato. We're talking about Reason, the Antitrust Education Project, Taxpayers Protection Alliance, Markets Institute, the AAF, the Washington Examiner's Editorial Board, American Enterprise Institute, Competitive Enterprise Institute. We have a long list of conservative organizations that see this as a threat to the free market as opposed to a hand up to smaller businesses. And if you dig into this and see what it actually says, we keep falling back on rule number one when it comes to any bill or proposed law that moves in front of these folks. And that is whatever the name is, Whatever they say that it is designed to do, then pretty much expect that it will be the exact opposite. It's a good rule of thumb. You're literally trying to give the Department of Justice more power. That's really all that comes from the so-called American Innovation and Choice Online Act. That is its official name. But I promise you, it does not support innovation, and it doesn't really give you much in the way of choice, and it's certainly not antitrust because in order for there to be a trust – well, tell you what. Hannah explained that very well, so if you're not listening to the podcast, if you haven't already heard that, just let me once again recommend you track down the podcast. If you're listening on Terrestrial Radio to the rebroadcast, track down down the podcast wherever you like to listen to podcasts, whether you're talking about Spotify or iHeartRadio or Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or wherever. This show can be found in podcast form on just about every podcast platform. So just look for it and go back and listen. Uh, that's, that's really all I can uh, say on the matter. Uh, just go back and listen to the conversation. It was a good one. All right. Um, yeah, I I saw this article here, and I saw this story. And ordinarily, I would just kind of let this fly by. But there's there's some delicious irony here that it kind of kept drawing me back to the story. See, I, I'm not a big fan of identity politics. You you guys know that. It's a common theme here on the show. But uh, I see a headline that says Black Biden staffers flee the White House, and uh, that piques my curiosity. So it's like, okay, well, here's the uh, identity politics, and 
because it's the Biden White House, now all of a sudden I'm like, let's let's take a deeper dive. You know, because so much has been made about what qualifies you to be a Supreme Court justice nominee. Uh, you need to be black and a woman, right? Now that's that's Biden's criteria. He announced that much. That's his words, not mine. Doesn't matter what her uh, jurist. Uh, history is. It doesn't matter what her judicial philosophy is. Uh, those those aren't issues. The only qualifications he gave a rat's backside about was being black and a woman, although technically he's not really supposed to know what a woman is. Uh, that, that's where the left is right now, right? Uh, anyway, he's made such a big deal about so many firsts in his administration. Well, it just raises the question of do we now have evidence that that's more virtue signal than virtue? Remember, I, I, along with several other conservative commentators, have pointed out that it's a lot of virtue signaling, not a lot of, not a lot of genuine virtue behind it. And this story, I thought at that point, seeing the headline, I'm thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe this poses some of that evidence. That uh, I and these other conservative commentators who've been trying to tell you this for some time now, maybe we're right. So I'm going to read to you a little bit of Mary Margaret Olihan's uh, piece over at thedailywire.com. And then, of course, I'm going to give you my usual riff upon it once we're there. But uh, anyway, from the article... Mary Margaret writes, uh, a large number of black White House staffers have reportedly departed or plan to depart from President Joe Biden's administration since late last year. Describing the White House that does not support them or offer them good promotion opportunities. Some of the black Biden staffers have coined the term Blacksit to describe the exodus from the administration. A current White House official and a former White House official uh, speaking to Politico uh, said that this administration has thus far prided itself on its discussion and focus on racial issues. But nine current and former black White House officials who spoke anonymously out of concern that there could be some level of reprisal and they're probably right to be concerned about that. Uh, they told the publication that the Blacksit has hurt morale in the administration, uh, saying, quote, compounding problems that exist elsewhere. Uh, this according to the report in Politico. These officials said that both mentorship and promotions in the administration are exceptionally rare. Again, according to Politico. Uh, quoting here again, one of the current black White House officials, told Politico, oh, we're here and we're doing a lot of work, but we're not decision makers, and there's no real path towards becoming decision makers. There's no real feedback, and there's no clear path to any kind of promotions. Another former black White House official said that some people have not had the best experiences. And a lot of that has to do with the uh, dearth of black leadership. 
so that the rest. Uh, think about any workplace. Uh, this is still that particular official. Black folks need some person to go to, to strategize and be a mentor. And we just don't have as many folks who can be mentors to us. Now, I'm going to stop right there, and I'm going to ask the question, why? I th- see. Once again, we're seeing the mindset of identity politics at play in the uh, work situation of the White House. You have a job to do, but just because you are, are a person of color doesn't mean that your mentor can't be, I don't know, let's say white. You can have a white mentor in this role. If your superiors happen to be white, superior, of course, by job title, I have to be careful using these words, otherwise I get canceled. But if those who are higher than you in the uh, the food chain of the department that you work in happens to be white, but they're interested in being a mentor, if they look to do team building and try to help you, why can't you have a mentor that is a little more Caucasian? I, I think that's a legitimate question, especially if in the Biden administration you have a lot of allies, right? I mean, I just have to ask the question. I I get that there is a certain level of pride and relatability that when you, as they like to say, see someone that looks like you. Now, personally, I get scared when I see somebody that looks like me because it's like, hey, is that me? What am I doing over there? But if you're in this situation, and I, re- I really don't mean to make light of it, but it's kind of funny. I'm sorry. I guess I do mean to make light of it. Anyway... They're legitimately saying that there's not enough black people uh, that are ranking higher than them, and therefore they're not getting the same opportunities at promotion. Now, my first question is if you're not getting an opportunity for promotion is are you standing out in your current position enough that you merit uh, that promotion? I mean, we know a lot of people are jumping ship from the Biden administration, so it seems like there should be good opportunities to promote from within the folks that aren't leaving. But something tells me once you were to get that job, you probably would want to leave too because then you realize how badly the ship is actually sinking. Uh, Again, that's just – I would imagine that to be the case. Back to the article and back to the quote. They brought in a ton of black people generally to start without ever establishing an infrastructure to retain them or help them be successful. This according to a third current black White House official. Again, speaking to Politico anonymously. Saying, quote, if there is no clear infrastructure of how to be successful, you become just as invisible in this space than you would be if you were not in it at all. Now, according to the Politico report, some black White House staffers fear that the the departure of black staffers exposes the White House larger mistakes. You think? I think it exposes something else completely, but here's the deal. There's not an infrastructure there uh, to help you succeed because... They don't know how to build an infrastructure. 
of any kind, and certainly not one that's going to be successful. The only thing this group of people knows how to do is tear down. Take a look at what they've done since coming into power. Since Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was installed as the occupier of the White House, bestowed upon him the title of President of the United States, not one good thing has happened for anyone in this country. Not one. He immediately started attacking energy policy. He then quickly moved to destroying our uh, international policy by the reckless and ill-timed pullout from Afghanistan, making us look weak around the world, thereby emboldening Russia, which led to the invasion in Ukraine, and further emboldening China, which according to leaked information, we now know they are uh, elbows deep in their planning of invading Taiwan. No matter how many times Joe Biden mistakenly says, yes, we will uh, militarily intervene. And he mistakenly says that because whether we would do that or not, it's still much better for international policy, especially when it comes to nuclearly armed adversaries, to be somewhat ambiguous. To say, well, maybe we'll do this, maybe we'll do something else. That's that's a good position to have if you can convince them that you're an actual threat that may be a wild card. That's something that Trump was very good at. One of the reasons why so many people on the world stage didn't want to cross Trump is because they weren't quite certain that he might not just, well, you know, uh, it's going to be huge when I decide to put a mushroom cloud over North Korea. I like Kim Jong-un. Then he smarted off and said a bad thing about Trump Tower. Boom. <laughs> so my really bad Trump impersonation aside, the point of the matter is there was always that concern that maybe Trump would be that kind of a wild card. Everybody just sees Joe Biden and thinks, man, just put the guy's slipper on him. Uh, give him some uh, give him some pudding uh, before bed. Uh, slide him on into nap time. Uh, let him watch Matlock. Make sure the... The Depends is on real good, that it's fresh there, and uh, have him in bed by 6 p.m. You know, that's, that's what the world sees. Now, whether that's an accurate depiction of what life is like at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue right now, that's not even relevant. It's still a case where, what is that adage they all like to say in PR? Perception is reality. Well, that's the perception this man has all around the world. Every time you guys on the left kept saying that Trump was going to be a laughingstock and was going to make us a laughingstock, that's not what happened. Now, some people got angry. And some people did laugh at Trump at first, but they stopped laughing pretty quick when they found that he was serious about how he was going to deal with NATO, that he was serious about uh, helping to create the Abraham Accords, the the first real vestige of any type of uh, effort and cooperation and actual peace in the Middle East of any kind, uh, naturally there's going to be limitations, but that was something that we should be building on, not looking to try to make sure that Iran can suddenly uh, build their nuclear weapons and claim that, oh, well, we thought you were just trying to build nuclear power. They lied to us. You knew. You guys know exactly what they're up to. Stop playing. I mean, maybe Joe himself doesn't, 
But the people that are actually pulling the strings behind the scenes that are running this administration, they know. Barack Obama knew when he sent the pallets of cash. We know. And we know they know. Yet we keep pretending like we didn't know they know. We want to pretend like, well, you see, they're just trying to be peaceful. No, that's not what's happening. I need to circle back around to the story. This is a story where identity politics has come around to bite Joe Biden on the tookish. Bites him because he's not as sensitive to these issues as he would like to pretend. He is not this super nice guy. He's never been the super nice. I'm still yet to figure out exactly where he got this nice guy image from because that's not who he's ever been. Back when he had this full faculties available to him, if somebody came in front of a, a Senate uh, committee for a hearing, if they were on the different side than what he wanted to pursue – then he was a jerk to these people. He was mean. He was rude. He, he, he tried to destroy Clarence Thomas. He, he brought forth this idea that uh, a certain amount of racism was okay. And, and people are going to say, oh, Tom, he's, he's virtue signal. He, he's, he's trying to promote black people. These black folks that are working for him right now are telling you, no, that's not the truth. There's the image, and then there's the reality. Now, the problem is when the truth is very different than the image, then that perception being reality starts to merge into something different because eventually the folks that are living the reality are going to take control of the perception. Joe Biden is a, a senator from the time when you didn't have to be so politically correct on issues of race. So he has made statements about uh, schools becoming jungles. He's made statements recently about how if you're not sure if you're going to vote for him or Donald Trump, then you ain't black. He's made a multitude of statements that shows a bigoted mindset, enough that would get me canceled if I was legitimately saying these things and meaning them. There's a ton of things that can be factually true, but it's still unacceptable to stay in the modern times because it's perceived to be racist. He's done these things in the past, and it's not going to take a whole lot, especially once the Democrats decide they've done as much damage as they can do, and they're done using this guy as their front. And make no mistake about it, they liked Joe Biden because they knew they could convince enough people that he was that, oh, well, he's the nice uh, older Uncle Joe. They thought they could convince enough people of that that they would buy into it. They thought that they knew there was a certain level of mental instability. Now, he may not be full-blown late stages but he's a certainly, at the very least, in early levels of some form of dementia. I don't think there's any question about that. I don't think there's any doubt. And if anybody does have a doubt about it, then they should probably be checked too. I think there was a group of people that saw 
we can put him in this position. He will literally sign anything we put in front of him as long as we pat him on the head and say, you're doing a great job, Joe. Which I'm pretty sure is a fairly accurate assessment of how the White House is being run right now, at least based on what I'm seeing. And then what would happen later on is after they've done all these things, should the American people rise up and say, this was wrong, this was wrong, we're not going to let this stand we're coming with the pitchforks. We're coming with the tar. We're, we're literally going to start running people out of town on rails legitimately like we used to, not just as saying anymore. They wanted to make sure that if people showed up with the torches and pitchforks, they could say, well, we really had no idea he was really that far gone and think that, well, everybody will forgive him because it's not his fault. And then you'll have to for, forgive them. By extension, because they weren't the ones signing the bills. They weren't the one recognized as president of the United States. And they will use that as cover in the event that some legal thing comes their way, much like a certain Mr. Sussman, who was acquitted. Nope, nope, well, we, we decided that was all political. We don't think he lied to the FBI. Come on, guys. Come on. All right, I'm letting myself get taken down into a rabbit hole that I'm not intending. Point of the matter here, though, is uh, when you play the identity politics game, if you don't respect the players, you will lose the game. And the problem here is it was always a game. And again, when it comes to the Biden administration, a lot of virtue signal, not a lot of genuine virtue. And I think this story is demonstrating that quite nicely. And perhaps, perhaps some of these folks are going to spend some time thinking about how good the economy was for minorities under the previous administration. Because, you know, that orange man who was bad, you know, the, the kicker of puppies, the eater of babies, the climate arsonist, that guy. Uh, he seemed to have had the economy going pretty well. The best economy for people of color in, well, for when it comes to Hispanics, uh, since we've been keeping those records. And yet, uh, you know, Joe Biden proven that he's about uh, equality, all right, because he's making us all equally miserable. And that's what you get with Virtue Signal. Instead of actual virtue. Let's take that mid-hour break, shall we? Uh, don't go anywhere. I'll be right back uh, after this brief message. My name's Joe Biden. All men and women created by the go, you know the you know the thing. <laughs> Joe Brandon, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he has made clear that, uh, 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 Lots of uh, walk around the world to ease my trouble. I'm down up, thank you, Jim. My body lying somewhere in the sands of time. No, no. I promise you, the president has a big stick. There's nothing I can do. I keep forgetting I'm president. The tragic mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, could have either been avoided or a much smaller situation. But far too many Americans ignore the most obvious solutions to such madness. Hello, I'm 
Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, brought to you by Constitutional Grounds Coffee, the coffee you want in your cup. Nobody in their right mind is against stopping the murder of innocent children and unarmed teachers in school buildings. Democrat and rhino calls for more gun control will not stop such madness. During the 20th century, Palestinian terrorists, cowards, would storm into Israeli classrooms and gun down Jewish children and unarmed teachers. Various security measures were taken, including the common sense effort to allow teachers who know how to use firearms to be fully armed in the classroom. And guess what? No more cowardly criminals murdering children in Israeli classrooms. Guns are simply a tool available for law-abiding sovereign citizens to protect themselves and even children in classrooms. I'm Ron Edwards. For Constitutional Grounds Coffee, go to the RonEdwards.com. Ron Edwards, the new voice of America. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. We often find ourselves arguing statistics with anti-gun people, but let's put the conversation into perspective. I'll give you some stats, but also expose the anti-gun left's real motives for gun control. First of all, don't you think that anyone who really wants to save lives would focus their attention on an area where the most lives are lost? The gun grabbers like to use the number of 30 to 40,000 gun-related deaths per year. But if we take out suicides, which are 60% of those gun-related deaths, which, by the way, are not reduced by the absence of guns, and we take out law enforcement-related deaths, in other words, good guys killing bad guys, we're left with about 14,880 gun-related homicides. But here's where it gets interesting. The majority of those gun-related homicides are gang-related. So let's say we didn't have the gang problem we have in this country. The number of gun-related homicides shrinks to 2,976 per year in America. And here's another interesting fact that the anti-gun left doesn't want you to know. The majority of gang-related violence occurs in Democrat-run cities across this country that are highly gun-restricted, by the way, and often allow violent illegals safe harbor. What that means is good people living within those cities are denied their right to protect themselves against the human violence that Democrats encourage with their bad policies. Now let's compare that to some other things that the anti-gun left could be working on if they really wanted to save lives. Drunk driving takes almost 11,000 lives per year in America. 47,000 lives are lost per year in America due to suicide, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia being two of the leading causes of suicide, not guns. But one of the biggest causes of preventable deaths in America is abortion. Almost 330,000 lives are taken per year in America by people committing abortion. Now let me give you a piece of information that the anti-self-defense crowd doesn't want you to know. How many lives do you think are saved every year because of guns? The answer is two and a half million. Every year in America, two and a half million lives are potentially saved by the use of firearms. Now this doesn't necessarily mean good guys killing bad guys. This most often means just the mere presence of a gun deters a bad guy. And 46% of those lives saved are women. This is a study that was done by Gary Kleck, a Florida criminologist, and backed by data from the CDC. So why do you think the gun grabbers never share this information? 
Well, some would argue that they don't really care about saving lives as much as they care about disarming their fellow citizens and preventing them from independently protecting themselves and their families. Gun control is a top-down method that puts government in charge of the lives and safety of people under the guise of public safety. It's the first step in stealing the freedom our founders fought for. The anti-left has already decided that they are willing to give up their freedom to government. The problem is, they can't have their government-controlled utopian society unless you get on board. And real Americans are clearly not getting on board. Gun control is a way of forcing you into dependence, whether you like it or not. Now, we're never going to cure the evil in the hearts of killers, but we can stop them. So, to the gun grabbers, do you really want to save lives? Then get to work on the real causes of human violence and help us restore our gun rights so good people can protect themselves. Help us save lives rather than ending them before they get a chance to take their first breath. I'm Dan Wass. To check out my webcast, go to LoadedMike.com. To check out my book series, go to GoodGunBadGuy.net. Our Constitution is a document in which we the people tell the government what it is allowed to do. We the people are free. Just a song. Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back after that very brief break. <clears throat> and obviously, I need to clear my throat. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Um, before we jump back into things, I want to take a moment to tell you about Full Circle Brewing Company. Uh, if you are from the Fresno area in California, you are probably already aware of their great, great beer. Yes, that's right. I'm talking about beer. Uh, Occasionally, it's good to have one. uh, As long as you don't go to an excess, it's not a big deal. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Full Circle Brewing Company. Uh, See, right now, they're a California exclusive. You're not going to be able to find their product outside of the state of California. But if you're one of the listeners in California right now, and I know there's a lot of you, uh, you're usually number two or number three overall in the listening within the United States audience, let me tell you a little bit about them. I mean, right now, the craft beer market, uh, it's safe to say that it's oversaturated with hoppy, bitter IPAs. Uh, You know, the kind of beer that's just not very appealing to the general market. So, over at Full Circle, uh, they set out to create beer that appeals to the beer connoisseur and the non-beer drinkers alike. You know, uh, wanted to set up to create things that resemble tastes that consumers are already familiar with. One of the things they did that's extremely unique is they created the Illa Milkshake IPA series. And uh, exactly that in mind, it's a creamy, fruit-forward set of beers that appear, um, I'm sorry, that appeal to a large customer base. They coined the phrase, beer-tainment as they managed to do this combination of craft beer and live entertainment. And uh, they are just, they're doing something that's very unique. And they've revitalized 
a lot of the the craft beer market in Fresno, but you can find their product pretty much anywhere in the state of California. And I would highly recommend you visit fullcirclebrewing.com if you are visiting the area or if you live there. If you're not already finding them at your local uh, stores or local restaurant, you can order. If you're in the Fresno area, you can pick up yourself or have it delivered. But uh, you can have it uh, shipped to you anywhere in the state of California. Visit the website. Take a look at all the interesting things they're doing there. And uh, see for yourself if this isn't something that uh, certainly stands out and is unique. Uh, As is often the case when I talk about a company like that, it means that, yes, I do indeed own a small, very small equity stake in the company. Uh, It's not... A very big stake. It's well below the minimum uh, amount before I'm required to inform you of that. But again, I'm going to hold to the same policy. I, I believe that if I'm going to mention a company on air and try to encourage you to uh, make purchases from them, that I should let you know that I stand to have some level of financial gain from it. it it's only fair for me to let you know. In the meanwhile, let's uh, let's get back to uh, let's get back to the show, shall we? All right. Well, uh, you might have noticed some extra time lately where we're discussing gun control and how the left wants to come out and take your guns away from you. And it's not just one or two folks on the left. There's a few squishy Republicans. Uh, they're calling them moderates, but. Uh, They're on board with trying to do some of this gun control stuff as well. Now, as my friend uh, Matt likes to tell you, and I will play as the outro song at the end of the second hour, as I normally do to shut down the show, uh, the only real gun control is using both hands. That that is gun control. (laughs) That is acceptable. But uh, the Democrats, they don't feel that way, and... Texas gubernatorial hopeful Robert Francis O'Rourke has once again demonstrated exactly what a lot of Democrats and some Republicans are on board for. Uh, This time, uh, once to be called Beto, Robert Francis has flipped his position yet again, saying uh, Tuesday that he did not believe that Americans who already owned AR-15s and AK-47s should be able to keep them. This, of course, marks the second time that O'Rourke has flipped on this issue recently, as he announced several months ago that he had abandoned one issue that had been the centerpiece of his failed 2020 presidential bid, gun compensation, at least when it came to the AR-15, saying, quote, I'm not interested in taking anything from anyone What I want to make sure that we do is defend the Second Amendment. I want to make sure that we protect our fellow Texans far better than we're doing right now. Now, that's what he said in November of 2021 as he campaigned for governor in the state of Texas. According to a report from Fox News, uh, Robert Francis's second 180 came just prior to the deadly shootings that took place last Tuesday at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. And he brought it up at two separate town halls in Texas a week before, saying, quote, 
I think we're fools to believe anything other than that these weapons of war will continue to be used with greater frequency against our fellow Americans. Robert Francis also said at an Abilene town hall meeting back on May 21st, uh, quote, it's why I've taken the position that I don't think we should have AR-15s and AK-47s in civilian life. They belong on the battlefield, except they're not really that good uh, as a military weapon, per se. Anyway, I mean, the AK-47, if you switch it to full auto, then it's a little better than the average. But the AR-15's not really... It's not really a tactical weapon. It's made to look tactical, but, uh, I mean, it's average at best. It's a popular gun because it looks cool and it's relatively affordable. But generally speaking, it's it's a good rifle. Uh, Being semi-automatic, it gives you a little more fun to play with if you take it to the shooting range. But... As far as weapons of war are concerned, there are far better rifles. I mean, uh, anyway. Robert Francis uh, mentioned collecting forced collections of uh, AR-15s while speaking to veterans during another town hall meeting that same day, uh, this one in San Angelo, saying that he didn't believe that people who legally owned AR-15s and AK-47s should be able to keep them. He said, My kids are my conscience, and I may win or lose this race, but I'm always going to have to face them and answer for what I've done or failed to do when I had the chance to do something. Well, Robert, my kids are my conscience too, and uh, sometimes my conscience snags me. Sometimes I hear them whispering in the night, but I'll tell you, when it comes down to it, the one thing I can control that this crazy, crazy world is going to throw at them is that as long as they are still under my roof, I need to be able to protect them. And one of the ways that I can protect them from violence and from those who would break in and do them harm is to have the ability to shoot at those who would illegally enter my property. Those who would do bodily harm to my children, to my wife, to me. Robert wants to be called Beto. Robert Francis most white guy name of all the white guys who don't want to be a white guy running for governor of Texas. There are Democrats in the state of Texas that are not going to support you rolling up into people's houses and taking away legally purchased firearms from law-abiding citizens. So you're going to lose. And if you feel the need to explain to your children about what you failed to do, well, let's see, there's the failed presidential attempt. There's the failed senatorial seat where you tried to, to run against, uh, against a, a certain, certain gentleman by the name of Cruz. 
and there's going to be this failed attempt to become governor of the state of Texas because you're not going to win. There's a few purplish areas. There's a few solid blue regions, uh, mostly around Dallas-Fort Worth. Houston's getting pretty bluish. But outside of that, those areas are not enough to carry the state, and you're not going to win saying, hey, I want to make you less safe. And ultimately, if you want to collect and forcibly remove firearms from people's homes, that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to make people less safe, and you're going to turn people who are law-abiding citizens now into criminals under your regime because they're going to say the U.S. Constitution trumps your mandate. They're going to remind you that the right to own and bear arms is the right to self-defense, and the right to self-defense is a God-given right, not a governmental given right. It's not some politicians decided to hand that right over to you. It is God-given, and it is constitutionally protected. The Second Amendment doesn't give us this right. It simply encapsulates this right. And you can talk about your children being your conscience all you want to, but what kind of conscience do you really have if you're not willing to stand up and protect your children any means necessary? Stop following this idea, this mindset that you want to disarm all your fellow Texans, and truthfully, Robert, you made it quite clear that you want to disarm all your fellow Americans, not just in Texas. Sure, there's a lot of people that lean to the left that agree with that mindset because you look at somebody like me and you think I'm dangerous. You think I'm the kind of person that's going to go to my gun cabinet and then just all of a sudden randomly start killing people. I'll remind you what my friend Chief, a former host of the great show Simple Facts of Life, said the other day in the middle of a conversation where I was debating a friend on social media about gun control. And then out of the blue, he snipes in, doesn't direct it at my friend, but directs it at me as if I was somehow this ridiculous dumb guy for not pointing this out. But he says, if you have a killer without a gun, what you have is a killer with a knife or a killer with a car or a killer with a brick. But if you have a gun without a shooter... All you have is a paperweight. That's what he said. Very clear cut, very simple, to the point. Something even a leftist could get after you let them think about it for a minute. The gun is completely harmless without someone pulling the trigger with the evil intent. And the person with the evil intent will use whatever tools are available to cause harm, and they will select soft targets. Even the ones that are mentally unstable tend to look for the easiest targets to hit. What Robert, Robert Francis O'Rourke wants you to call him, Beto, what he's doing is he's saying the, the quiet part out loud, only a lot of A lot of these politicians are now saying that quiet part out loud. They want to disarm you because they don't trust you. They know. Make no mistake about it. They know that whatever laws they pass are not going to affect criminals. 
They know whatever laws they pass are not going to affect the mentally impaired. That's not who this targets. And if it's not their intention to target those of us who are law-abiding citizens that simply want to exercise our God-given, constitutionally protected right to own a firearm in order to be able to defend ourselves should it become necessary, well, then, you know what, if that's not your intention, then you might want to reevaluate what your so-called solutions will actually accomplish. You don't want to arm teachers. You don't want to put more armed security at schools. You don't want to increase metal detection and, and single point of entry, which most schools are supposed to have already. In fact, the, the school, Rob Elementary School, you weren't supposed to be able to get in the door that this kid went into. But one of the teachers had propped the door open. Who knows why? Doesn't matter now. Pretty sure that wasn't part of the safety protocol. All that matters is the door was propped open. That made easy access in a, a place that's not supposed to be an entry point into the building. Simple solutions. You look at statistics and you see where there's more gun ownership per capita, there's less violent crimes of all kinds, period. And the inverse is also true. Where there is less gun ownership per capita, there is more violent crime per capita. There's a reason for that. Again, that whole idea about picking a soft target. If the only people that are going to have the guns are the bad guys, then the bad guys are going to be worse. You're going to limit your opportunities to be able to defend yourself. You, Robert Francis, you want to limit my ability to defend myself and my family? You want to interfere with my God-given right to self-defense? You want to ignore one of the basic precepts that this nation was built on, and that is the people are the sovereigns, and the people have the right to defend themselves even from the potential of a tyrannical government? See, that's the real reason the current elected crew wants to disarm you because they want to be able to be the only folks that have guns them and the criminals and really sometimes it's hard to tell the difference isn't it i think it's time that we reminded them that uh they don't have that power here that in the united states of america we are a constitutionally federated republics where the citizens are the sovereign. You don't have to like it, especially if you're not from here. But if you are a citizen here, you need to embrace that, and you need to remind those who have been elected to office. All right, I got just a couple of minutes left, and uh, just a little while ago, I was talking about the Full Circle Brewing Company, a California exclusive. Well, this next story I'm going to just kind of squeak in under the wire. Uh, it's also a situation that's uh, you know only in California. A California court has ruled that bees are fish. Obviously, these folks have failed biology again. First, they couldn't define what a woman is. Then they couldn't tell you that a woman doesn't have a penis. Now they have had difficulty identifying between different non-human species. Yes, in a ruling that was published on Tuesday of this week, 
The California Court of Appeals for the Third Appellate District said that the California Fish and Game Commission could move forward with the decision to add four species of bumblebees to the list of threatened species protected by the state's Endangered Species Act. The court ruled that the law's history, along with the Fish and Game Commission's previous decisions to declare a species of snail that lives on the land as a threatened fish, meant that the commission would be uh, able to count bees as invertebrates, which falls under the commission's definition of fish. Although the term fish is colloquially uh, and commonly understood to refer to aquatic species, the term of art employed by the legislature in the definition of fish in Section 45 is not so limited. So, Judge uh, Ronald B. Robbie uh, wrote in the majority opinion in the case, under the California Fishing Game Code, a fish is defined as a wild fish, mollusk, crustacean, invertebrate, amphibian, or part, spawn, or ovum of any of those animals. So the code also defines an endangered species as a native species or subspecies of a bird, mammal, fish, amphibian, reptile, or plant, which is in serious danger of becoming extinct. It defines threatened species in a similar way. So here's my question, guys. Why can't you just say it's endangered and let the commission say this invertebrate uh, falls under this category without having to define it as something that clearly isn't. I'm sorry, I'm a trained biologist, okay? Biology was my focal point. I have a hard time accepting a bee as a fish. I don't think it's that hard to just call it what it is and still offer it the protection. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for protecting any of these species that needs it. If if you're uh, not being destructive to humanity in order to preserve a species, then by all means, let's protect let's protect nature. I, you'll be surprised if, if you're a lefty to find out how many conservatives actually want to conserve uh, this world we live in because we do appreciate it. It's just you guys want to pretend like we don't. Anyway, that's going to have to be it for today. Uh, I, as always, am honored that you stayed with me this long. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, one last message for Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. Uh, before we head out. But uh, before I say goodbye to you, I want to remind you to please, whatever else you take away from the show, don't take my word for it. Definitely, definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort and most importantly, use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. And uh, yeah, Joe, uh, by the way, this is Tim Tapp. Let's go, Brandon.